sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. I can't do that without laughing when I try to imitate Nate. Nate is not here, but I've got Tom Ryan sitting in with me, our good old friend. Hey, Tom. Hey, Aaron. How are you? I'm just hanging out here. I've got a radiant heater behind me. So this was my first warm morning in my office because we still have no heat in my house. And for some reason, I had that in the living room, which nobody uses the living room. And last night I thought, why don't I put it in here? And oh, not having frozen fingers. This this magic trackpad with my Mac freezes my fingertips every morning. Anyone that has a non-heated room and a magic trackpad will know what I mean. It's so I'm I'm super delighted at this moment. But I want to hear how you are. I want to hear how living integrated is going. You're going around doing intensives with men. You're doing all kinds of stuff. So tell us. Yeah, I'm grateful for an old guy telling them useful, and I'm so uh, surprised by that and 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 grateful. Yeah. So thanks for remembering. Yeah, my my nonprofit is Living Integrated. Anybody that wants to find me or any of the resources I put on that can find me at Living Integrated One Word dot org dot com dot net all three go to the same place and um so descri- describe that to people because i i feel like the last time the last times you're on the show or at uh retreats all of that was kind of just getting built up building websites creating the thing describe all of this to our listeners yeah uh you're right it was being built up and slow it's a, a small nonprofit but it's trying to bring the tools of healthy spirituality and healthy uh, recovery together for uh, Christians um, that are trying uh, struggling from compulsive sexual behavior to one degree or another. So I've got a couple of free resource packages on the website that I put together. Uh, one's for guys that maybe are struggling with the habit of porn, but let's not race ahead and label them an addict or a compulsive. And how do you break those habits? And then for guys that need something more, but don't know how to find a therapist, a group, or early on the stage, or just don't want to talk to anybody about it, you know, uh, start them on online thing. And that's a 15 tasks that I have, uh, practices that I have on a, uh, another free package. I had some blogs and some other resources on that. Uh, I've got a really great board um, for my nonprofit, and I'm hopeful that they will uh, continue to shape and guide and push things forward and help me be as effective as possible until uh, time for me to move on. Uh, another another thing that uh, I'm really pleased and grateful for and, and kind of stunned by is a participation in developing a Christian uh, 14-day men's intensive. Some of our listeners may have participated in or had friends that attended a 14-day intensive called Begin Again Institute out in Colorado. Well, Two years ago, the the um, creator of Begin Again Institute decided to do a Christian version, and that's when I became involved. So now six times a year, and next year we're going to expand that number. Um, during the 14 days that guys go and live together in community and do psych ed, and trauma therapy reduction, and group work, um, I go spend a couple of days with the clients talking about integrating spirituality 
asking questions, looking at verses, talking with each other about our church backgrounds, faith backgrounds, where's Jesus in the midst of the recovery, and exploring the idea, uh, is Jesus sitting with arms folded, watching us go through these things, waiting for us to get our act together so he can bless us, or has Jesus oh, okay. been working has Jesus yeah. been working all along behind the scenes and has brought us to this point is using the very things that afflict us to bring us closer to the intimacy he desires for us to have with him, the spirit and our father. So, so you're you're talking gospel and identity integration. I, I was just I was talking with someone that's dear to me about uh their their twelve step step experiences, which I think 12 Steps has a, an important place in so many people's lives. Yeah. In his particular experience, the integration of the spiritual was that Bible verses, just like one verse, pulled often out of context, was used like all of the 12-step one-liners, which 12-step the, has the most brilliant collection of one-liners. Any old 12-stepper will have a one-liner for anything you have to say, and they're usually uh, yeah. brilliant. Yes, but yeah, I agree. I agree. Frankly, yeah. when we were talking and the verses he was pulling out that just hurt me, because I'm like, that's not even what that first means. I thought I would take the one-liners from the 12 steps over the the Bible being used as one-liners. Right, right. And, yeah. and that that's not what it means to integrate spirituality with your recovery. You're talking no. about something else. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I agree with you. I, I love the slogans. So many of the slogans are just, they're, uh, oh gosh, what would the word be? Um, there's something wisdom. I can't remember. Roar uses that term about just, but, but a common wisdom, a, 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 a generational wisdom that just yeah. spans the ages. There's so much of that. There's parts of the big book of AA to this day, Aaron. When I read it, I go, this is borderline inspired. I mean, it'd be heretical to call it scripture, but this is so insightful to the human condition does speak to spirituality, but our attempts sometimes to kind of uh, force 12-step uh, practice and 12-step slogan and 12-step teaching into a distinct Christian form, uh, you know, uh, model with the appropriate verses so that it's so that it's churched. It's okay for church people. I mean, that's really right. I think what's behind all that, and that's really not the, the point. It's really not even necessary. Um, right. Church people will become open to 12-step methodology and practice and group work if they're in enough pain and if they find the right people who have the right are motivated by the right, right. spirit. Then, then the 12-steps will be very, very helpful. And the, yeah, it originates in, a, in an Anglican renewal movement and six principles of life around surrender and willingness and honesty and service and accountability right. and something else I've forgotten. So, right, I guess I guess what the yeah. sad part is for those of my friends who have never had a wise teacher to help them integrate their faith into their recovery, their recovery becomes more church than Jesus. Yeah. Like Jesus becomes an add-on to recovery versus, oh, this recovery journey is actually opening my heart up to understand the love of God through Jesus. And that's a those are opposite things. Those are two very different things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely no. It's it's not about a system of theology or even an ecclesiastical practice. It's about at heart a relationship, and uh, the fact is that in life all of us have experienced various degrees of hurt in human interactions in our families and with friends in life. 
uh, from other people. Uh, some of us have had help getting those hurt circuits uh, worked through, and others of us have stayed in a certain place of unresolution, irresolution, and it becomes trauma, trauma that we carry forward. And that hurt has to be healed in a relationship, and that'll be in human community. But ultimately, it's if we can be introduced in human community to a divine relationship where we learn to, as you often talk about, our father, our daddy, our papa, our 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 father of the heavens who loves us and the, the one that Jesus talks about, the one that Jesus mm-hmm. demonstrates, the one that Jesus always speaks of, that he talks about so eloquently in the Sermon on the Mount. If you, being less than perfect beings, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father in heaven long to give you good things, good gifts, and the Holy Spirit himself? And wow. that's the heart of genuine spiritual recovery, I think, Christian recovery. But for a lot of us, our theology, our practice inadvertently gets in the way and reinforces a shame message, which is never the message of the Holy Spirit. No. No. If if anybody wants to discern the voice of God, ask the question, is this voice in my mind shaming or condemning me? Because since there is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ, that voice is not and never will be the voice of God. So, hey, you just discerned the voice of God. Congratulations, friends. <laughs> hey, we got a good conversation coming up, and we need to get to it. But, uh, friends, go go see what has uh, grown in Tom's life. Say again where they need to go to check this out. Livingintegrated.org. All right, and we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. You know, listening to podcasts like this one is certainly helpful to your recovery. And so are the many books that we recommend. But recovery is not something that any of us can do by independent study. None of us can recover alone. We heal in relationship. So it's crucially important for you to find a recovery community, a Samson Society group, or a Pure Desire group, or a Celebrate Recovery or other 12-step programs somewhere where you can bring your real self and say the real truth. And there's another resource that you can draw on, one that's been extremely helpful to me over the years. In those times when my recovery has plateaued or when I've gotten stuck or I've started to lose ground, I've found that there's nothing like time with a highly skilled, well-trained therapist or recovery coach to get me moving again. Now, sometimes that's taken the form of a weekly counseling appointment. At other times, it's meant attending a week-long or a weekend intensive. If you're ready to take a dramatic step forward in your recovery, let me suggest LifeWorks Christian Counseling. Uh, These are good folks. The Hunters and their staff get addiction. They understand trauma. And their approach is both biblically and scientifically sound. They work with individuals and couples. They're based in Madison, Mississippi, but they can work with you anywhere remotely through Zoom. And at various times throughout the year, they also run weekend intensives for Samson guys. To learn more, go to lifeworks.ms. That's lifeworks.ms. Or give them a call at 601-790-0583.
Welcome back to the Pirate Bunk Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Mark Mayfield. Is it okay if that's the only time I call you Dr. Mark, or do I Please, need to do it no. the rest of the time? No, nope, uh, do not. Do not call me that the rest of the time. Thank you, Mark and <laughs> Jesus, both. Uh, Mark is a leadership coach, counselor, and professor, former founder and CEO of Mayfield Counseling Centers in Colorado Springs, who now lives in Texas and uh, is, is a licensed professional counselor that works with families affected by trauma, talks about emotions. We are going to have fun today. <laughs> and you spent the first 10 years of your life, just like an hour and a half from where I grew up in San Ynez, California, baby. No, nobody knows where that is, except for those that were living in the area. Oh, come on. They they know Michael Jackson's... Uh, oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Never, what, what, what was that place called? Never, Neverland Ranch. Neverland Ranch was in San Ynez. <laughs> it was. Yep. And I just want to say, are you okay, Mark? Was I everything am. Okay. We, 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 we drove by it, and I would ask questions, and my dad would just keep on driving. So, <laughs> so lots of time and solving and Kachuma Lake and other oh, things yeah. we won't talk about because uh, nobody cares except us. But then you went to Colorado... At what point did you end up on this path to to be like give us the thumbnail sketch of your story sure. that led you into trauma therapy and emotions and all of that? Uh well, I mean I was uh, a very um, emotional kid, a uh, very sensitive kid, uh and you know how kids can be got really kind of targeted for that when I was in middle school, uh, bullied abused by my peers quite a bit and uh, led to a suicide attempt when I was 12. Um, and okay, pause, pause, yes, pause. Sir. 12 years old. That is that is an intense response to the, the bullying and loneliness. Like, how does oh, yeah. a 12-year-old get there? Uh, I was in the midst of a physiological response of just uh, migraine headaches and going to the doctors and getting prodded and poked and you know, a lot of testing and that kind of stuff. And I just remember, I don't know if it was necessarily uh, an active suicide attempt is more, it was just one of the pain to go away. And so I ended up uh, choosing to uh, take a bottle of Tylenol, which uh, rushed to the hospital, you know, I had my stomach pumped and, and, you know, my mom and dad really began to realize maybe this is not a physiological you know, uh, uh, issue. It was, it's a, it's an issue of, of the mind and the body and the emotions and the spirit. And, but, you know, I think one of the things we don't realize, we can d talk about this more later, but mm -hmm. most kids don't have the capacity to, uh, formulate emotional language, uh, at that age, it's done through culture and it's done through parenting. And I just didn't have any way to express what was going on into the depths of what was going on. So, what what would you say the differences and similarities between a twelve year old trying to kill themselves and a twenty eight year old trying to kill themselves are? Uh, it depends, right? It depends on kind of the uh, the cognitive and the emotional uh, uh, maturity of that twenty eight year old. Because uh, when I so I teach at Colorado Christian University in their clinical mental health department, and um, when I'm working with my students, I always ask them uh, what is their chronological age, but then also what is their emotional age and their, you know, their uh, mental health, you know, mental age. Cause a lot of times we'll have arrested development based on trauma and, or based on substance use or based on something in our life that kind of keeps us stuck emotionally. And so 
uh, not really, you know, not in an in and around to your question. I just can't answer that because it's, it's depending on the 28 year old. Um, but a lot of times when we go through trauma, our emotional language portion of the brain actually turns off because it's, it's set to protect ourselves. Like God has designed us to. Mm-hmm. You talk about lang- uh, the, the emotional language part, you separate um, emotions and feelings, right? Emotions yeah. being just the, the response of our body to mm-hmm. data and feelings being more the narratives or the language that we come up with. So Correct. Tell, yeah. tell us a little more about that as we talk about this integration. Well, I think it's, it's interesting because uh, when I do my talks and I travel the country and, and talk and speak and I have people uh, define emotion, uh, you know, on their paper in front of them. And then I have the next question is define feelings. And then I get the, you know, this look in my, you know, the deer in the headlights right. look. <laughs> I, <laughs> I said, that. how many of you realize, just now realize that there's difference between emotions and feelings and 90% of the room raises their hands. And I'm like, okay, so let's, let's be really, let's, let's, let's pare this down. Emotions, like you said, are just our body's response to something. Uh, it's an internal response, external response. You know, my, my palms get sweaty, my heart starts racing and the hair stands on the back of my head, you know, my neck or whatever that be. Uh, but then the feeling piece is the meaning we make from that experience. And a lot of that is taught to us through our, uh, observations and experiences as, as children. How did our parents react? So, you know, you and I could have different definitions of anger based on what we observed growing up. Uh, we could have different definitions of sadness based on what we saw growing up. And so uh, it then becomes a very unique experience for the person. Um, and so I think part of the reason our society is where it's at is that we just assume we're speaking the same language, and we're not. Man, okay, there's there's so many directions. And I want to hear Tom's thoughts on this. Uh, I mean, you're talking, number one, defining terms is very important and we certainly live in a time where defining terms has just divided people like Mm -hmm. we're not defining things the same way but also you're talking about i learned this emotional language from my youngest age based on family friends Mm -hmm. all of that but Mm -hmm. even that can be unconscious Mm -hmm. but it's still very much the way I then create narratives. Yep. So, all right, Tom, I, I want to know what your thing. I saw you nodding with separating out emotions and feelings. Dr. Tom, yeah. only time <laughs> calling you that as well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cause as Aaron knows, I've been long-term in recovery um, and it's not been an even path or even journey. So I'm late to this whole distinction that you're making, which I really appreciate, Mark, about distinguishing between feelings and um, and emotions. And uh, for so many of us in uh, in uh, recovery that have been living compulsive lifestyles, not only do we not have a good differentiation between emotions and feelings, we don't even know what our feelings are. Uh, I remember talking to a friend years ago and he's going through a really hard time. I said, so how are you feeling? He goes, well, on the assumption that I have feelings, let me think. And he looked at the ceiling and it scratches. Oh, which, I feel bad for your friend just now when you said that. that. That's heartbreaking, but go on. Yeah, it is heartbreaking, except that I understood why yeah. he was wondering. But, but um, 
uh, I, one of the things I have a privilege of doing right now uh, is a few times a year participating in a men's intensive recovery program called Boulder Recovery. So it's oriented towards Christians, 14-day intensive for guys recovering from compulsive porn use or compulsive sexual behavior. And one of the tools that we use in the office, I'm just holding it up right now because I still am fascinated with it, is called the feeling wheel. On mm-hmm. one side, they have mm-hmm. feelings, which starts with emanating with six primary feelings. Now, there's different ways to do a feeling chart. This one has six. So it's sad, mad, scared, peaceful, powerful, joyful. Uh, and then they emanate out into two rings beyond that. But on the other side uh, is called sensations. And there's over 75 words given to clients here to try and pick out a uh, sensation everywhere from open and light to constricted or clenched or buzzy or itchy or dizzy or floating or draining. And um, it's, it's, in, it's instructive to me that so many of us actually need that kind of a tool to, mm-hmm. to, to get our imagination going just to give us some language and some thinking and some permission like you're doing to say there's a lot of sensations, feelings going on. And it's not the same as what your core emotions are are underneath, but identifying what these are is oftentimes a much more important avenue towards um, towards getting to what we need, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. opposed to thinking through what's the next Bible verse I should quote to myself, uh, what was the last thing I heard my therapist say, uh, what did my buddy say or my spouse say to me this morning. Uh, running those kinds of uh, cognitive narratives through our heads, which is really how a lot of us spend our time thinking. I just really appreciate this this work, this topic. So, Mark, I interrupted the question I first asked mm-hmm. and jumped into this, but it might answer the next question that had to do with what Tom said. Here you had this experience at 12. Your parents were taking it more seriously at an emotional level. So where did your story take you next, and how did you find the difference between emotions and feelings in that way? Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't even think that that was, you know, that process was even a, a cognitive shift. It, I went to Christian counseling. I was able to, you know, begin to put words to what was going on. My dad and I we were able to heal our relationship. You know, we're great friends now, type of thing. And but I think uh, I began to exercise my care for people through mission trips and through different things and just felt like the next logical step was to go be a youth minister. And so, uh, you know, went to Colorado Christian university, got my youth ministry, biblical studies degree, did that for about five years in just the roughest place in the world called Breckenridge, Colorado. And, uh, you know, just suffered for Jesus on the slopes (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm picturing a lot of snowboarding trips. Yep. Yep. Um, but hadn't then had a kid that uh, in the community, not in my youth groups per, per se, but had a kid die by suicide, and then a, mm. a kid struggle with drugs and different things. And um, you know, they got married during that time, and my wife and I are like, we don't like, yeah, I believe the Bible is sufficient. I believe prayer is 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 powerful, uh, but it didn't seem to really meet the needs of the community at that time. And I just felt like I needed some more training, and so. Uh, jumped uh, on uh, down the, the slopes down to Denver and went to Denver Seminary and got my master's in counseling and minor in theology and uh, began just working. You know, I think what I'm realizing is once a pastor, always a pastor. So I'm now thrown into working with kids in the juvenile justice system and gangs in the inner city of Denver. And I was doing inner city youth ministry. And so always had that uh, working with families, working with teens. Um, 
But it wasn't until my PhD program uh, where I really began to tease out this conversation and going, okay, there's there's differences here. And a lot of it is linguistic. A lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is uh, experiential. And I think we do so well in our society of, of siloing things. Uh, go to the pastor for your spiritual health. Go to the doctor for your physical health. Go to the therapist for your mental health. And I'm like, well, sure, great. But if they're not talking to each other, you're getting different advice from different people. So what does it look like to be integrative in the sense that that uh, our mind, body, spirit is a, in my theological opinion, a direct representation of the Trinity. And, and so the Trinity is not siloed. They're integrative. They're, they're in relationship. And so why can't our mind, body, and spirit be in relationship? So when I work with my patients now, it's, it's, we're talking about the spiritual. We're talking about the physical. We're talking about the mental and emotional and how uh, if any one of those is uh, struggling, it's going to affect the rest of them. Well, let me ask a really simple question that nobody has talked about for the last, I don't know, three, four, six thousand years. Uh, you're making a trichotomy as opposed to a dichotomy. The mind and spirit are separate. Okay, define mind, body, and spirit for us so we know what this integration looks like. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think it just as simple as it goes back to, to the scriptural references, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like this I idea did think that, that was familiar. It was very familiar. Yeah, <laughs> um, you know, I think our 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 mind is 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 a mixture of our thoughts and our and our and our feelings. And so, if we go back to the definition of feeling, feeling is the meaning we make from our experiences or our physical experiences. Then it is we're we're making cognitive sense of what's happening to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the body is you know our DNA, our cells, our blood, our our uh, just how God has designed us. Um, and then the spiritual piece, I think, is just that encompassing of it all, right? That that links us uh, to things that are greater than us. Um, but the more that we dive into uh, the science of the body, the more that we see uh, just the, the the depth of the interconnectedness. Um, the fact that uh, in, in my first book, I talk about this idea of um, the fact that our our relational health is directly related to our cardiovascular health uh, and how well our blood uh, is flowing and oxygenating and engaging. And we find that people that have unforgiveness and bitterness actually have constricted veins and have high blood pressure and and potential uh, precursors of heart disease uh, versus those that are uh, in healthy and open and vulnerable relationships. It's just it's so it's just fascinating, you know. And that's that comes from a uh, I can't take credit for that. That comes from a book um, by Thomas Cowan called uh, "Human Heart, Cosmic Heart," uh, which is a fantastic read. Okay, all right. Not to complicate this because I don't like to complicate things. Uh, I the mind and body piece, especially for Christians, mm-hmm. gets confusing. Because our mind, our brain itself, the neurological mm-hmm. stuff, is a part of our body, which is why Christians are often just like, pray away depression. Anything sure. that's in your mind, yes. we become like spiritual healers, even though yep. we mock charismatics for physical healing. Like, <laughs> come on, double standard. Uh, it, it's a crazy double standard because there is. is a body component to the mind, and yet there's also something else you're sure. talking about, which includes... So break that down for so, me a little bit. 
So I'm glad you brought that up. So the brain is actually a dumb organ. Let's just call it that. It's a dumb organ, meaning it, <laughs> that's it, fantastically unexpected. It, it because it, it 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 adjusts to what our mind tells it to do. So you think about it when somebody is sitting. You know, when I used to do. Uh, I mean, I, this is how how crazy I am. I mean, there's times where I would go and actually go to a cadaver lab and sit with with people that you know, doctor, doc, you know, medical students that were doing cadaver lab stuff. And you sit there and you just observe, and and the person that they're working on was a is a human being, was a human being, but the thing that makes them different from when they were alive to when they're dead is actually the spark, the spiritual spark within the brain, and and so without that, the brain is just a, a mass, a three and a half pound, five pound mass of flesh, and so this is where I, I don't disagree with some things is that how we think so we become doesn't the bible talk about that doesn't it talk mm-hmm. about the renewing of our mind this idea that that how we think about things how we engage the world around us actually has a direct correlative effect on our physical health and our emotional health and our spiritual health but we're not just products of our environments and that's where i think a lot of times people get uh this confused uh that we have no choice in the matter. We have no ability to, to change things. I, and I tell my students to do this all the time. I said, next time you wake up with a sore throat, try this. Go, oh my gosh, I got a sore throat. Let me go get my echinacea and my cough syrup. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'm okay. It's just a little cough. By the end of the day, 90% of the people will be fine. It'll be a lingering sore throat or lingering cough. But if you wake up in the morning and go, oh, oh man, ah, I'm sick. This is sick. I'm getting sick. This is horrible. By the evening, you're going to be in bed with a fever. Tom Ryan, what are you thinking right now? Well, I really appreciate what you said uh, when you said the brain is a fantastically dumb organ. It does what our minds tell them to. And and then my next thought was, and yet oftentimes our minds don't direct our thinking, don't direct our brain. We're reactive. Uh, we, yes. And, 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 and I'm holding that with that whole biblical admonition we see over and over and over, wake up, wake up, wake up, mm-hmm. pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. But mm-hmm. I don't. I, I kind of sleepwalk. I, I am more of a reactive creature, yep. habitual creature. And therefore, those patterns that I've, that I've, I've developed intentionally or unintentionally, my brain they will just run until they get redirected. Well, so what do you think about is it is it fair to nuance that statement to your mind is still directing your brain it's just doing it unconsciously based on traumas and past. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think then also too we have to recognize that uh the cortical limbic system which is our thalamus, hippocampus, amygdala is really a lot of our fight, flight or freeze reactionary pieces. It's our impulse piece. And we don't recognize that through the interior cingulate, which is kind of the extension cord or drawbridge or however you want to look at it, connects the frontal cortex, which is the thinking part of the brain. Man, um, now I got to call you Dr. Mark again. <laughs> go back, yeah. But, <laughs> but what happens is we don't realize is that just in our human nature, we are impulsive creatures, and that's conscious or unconscious, right? And it takes, and this is why I'm a big advocate for family. It takes parents, it takes grandparents, it takes teachers and coaches to go, okay, that was an emotional impulsive response. Not what were you thinking? Cause most teenagers are going to go, I don't know, which is true. Uh, but go, what were you feeling in that moment? And how did you arrive at that decision and that, that conclusion? And what we're doing is we're helping strengthening the interior cingulate to the frontal cortex. 
And what we see in brain scans, Dr. Daniel Amen does brain, you know, a lot of different people that I know do a lot of good stuff around the brain scans. What we see is the interior cingulate for people that meditate, the people that are in good relationships that meditate on scripture, God's word and pray. The interior cingulate is actually millimeters thicker on scans than the average person. And what that means is now we have a holistic brain. I react, I, th- I slow down, I make sense of it, now I think. And the more I do that, we go from what you're saying, Tom, to this kind of unconscious at times impulsive uh, piece to being more mindful and we're slowing down. And that all happens through what I think the church has really failed on is the, the encouragement of disciplines. We see our, you know, our desert fathers and mothers talking about the, the disciplines that we don't really do in our evangelical church anymore of scripture memory, of prayer, of, of uh, as John Eldridge talks about this idea of just pausing and slowing down and just noticing. Um, that's what we need to be teaching. That's where we're going to get emotional wholeness. That's where we're going to get this whole integrative conversation. Um, but most of the society just wants, like, fix it now, make me feel better. Let's, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's move on. Versus like, let's just, let's just be mindful. Let's just slow down. But isn't that weird that society is fix it now? Uh, what's the you know what's the six month version of this? While at the same time, when I'm at the worst places in my mind, now I have to figure out my terms well. Uh, <laughs> when I'm at my worst places in my mind, it feels like it will never go away. I.e., yeah. it's not temporary. Right. So I both want it fast, and I believe it's forever. And something about understanding, even you breaking apart the integration of the mind, body, and spirit, some of those aspects of me are eternal, and some of them are not going to live past the grave. This is just part of... So, understanding the temporary nature and that I am not stuck where I am seems like an important encouragement for anybody that wants to develop their mind to be integrated with their body and spirit. Talk to me about that. For sure. And I think what I need your listeners to understand too is that every emotion has a beginning and end. Every you know, and so the the physiological experience, the emotion, every emotion has a beginning and an end. It has a climax. But if we don't take the time to slow down and pay attention to what's going on inside our body, we're going to numb. We're going to avoid. We're going to you know. This is where sometimes we get compulsive, like we're talking about Tom. Just like you know, people that are moving toward, you know, compulsive shoppers, pornography use, alcohol, anything like that, where we're trying to, and that's just an avoidance mechanism because we don't want to feel, we don't want to sit with what's going on inside of us because it's unfamiliar, it's scary. And so I always work with my patients and just say, listen, in order to start this process, you have got to slow down and notice. Now do it, find a good support system, let your spouse know, a best friend, somebody know that you're going through this. It's not going to be easy at first, but recognize that every emotion has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a climax. And in our mind, we think it's lasting forever, but when in reality, it might be 20 minutes, a half hour, a day. And this is where I really challenge in my second book, this the, the, uh, my people to begin to become old friends with their emotional experiences as they make meaning of it and make them into feelings becoming old friends now is I'm not going to be scared by it. I'm not going to be upset by it. I know that when anxiety shows up, it's a physiological response that works this course out. And I have made meaning by it. I'm familiar with it. I'm not afraid of it. 
and I have my, my skills, I'm going to go get myself a weighted blanket or get a cup of tea. I'm going to go sit down and just take a break. I'm paying attention. Um, so, so it sounds like you're talking some integrated family systems therapy oh, there. Yeah. Um, okay, Tom, you had something to say. Go ahead. Well, when you're talking about working those emotions through, playing them all the way through, that makes perfect perfect sense. And and I'm I'm guessing that that your approach to that, your application to that, is that we do that best in some form of safe community. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That if I if yes. I if I try and process it on my own, I'll relegate back to some of my thinking patterns and run yep. the risk of reinforcing the wrong messages, the wrong co- uh, cognitive beliefs that are really emotional uh, set trauma reactions that I've never resolved. Agreed. Yeah. I saw I saw Kurt Thompson wrote the forward on one of your books, and I love I use mm-hmm. his soul of shame uh, in oh, my yeah. stuff with Boulder and, and other places. And, and he talks about shame, that indelible message that I don't have what it takes to handle my emotions. Yep. And that came to my mind when you were talking, Mark, because, yes, yeah, so many of us, we do have strong emotions, strong feelings. They may be tethered to a, a hurt in a relationship or some kind of a trauma or some sense of personal deficit where somebody's pointed us out or raked us over the coals. You went through that in your adolescence. I, I can only imagine, try and imagine how painful it was for you to get to the point where at age 12, you were willing to take a bottle of Tylenol and try and get yourself out of this life. That's just a, such a dark, dark, hard place to be. Um, and we need, God's wired us for connection. We know that we say that over and over and over. Nate loves to say the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. It's connection. That's true. Yep, yep, um, yep. But doing that is so freaking risky because what oh, if I is. start talking about something that I'm feeling and you actually agree with the feeling that, yeah, you really are a crappy person, Tom. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, I really see why you're so disappointed in yourself and why you don't see a purpose for your life. Cause uh, I frankly don't see one for you either. <laughs> But the reality is, if we've if we've been if we've been blessed with good people, or if we choose wisely uh, when we entrust ourselves to others, yep. as Thompson says, that's when we begin to revise our own narrative. Well, and I go one step further that with him, and Thompson, I think agrees with this is this idea that Irving Yalom, uh, the great existential therapist, uh, said sometimes the best you can do is a paid friend. And that, you know, is a coach or a counselor or somebody that's going like. Not a prostitute. That is not what Mark is talking not about. Not, hey, not a prostitute. Thank you, Aaron. Not thank you for that hey, question. I want yeah, to some of our listeners, that's an important, that's an important <laughs> clarification. defining it's the a, terms. So a counselor, a therapist. Yep. yep. A coach, you know, or, or taking a risk with a pastor. And a lot of us have had church hurt, so pastors are not safe at times. But uh, counselor, you know, counselor, coach. Um just to get it started, right? Just to get it started. Because many of us that are trying to wanting to figure this out, have a desire to figure this out. We go, I'm, I'm taking stock of my family. I'm taking stock of my friend. Nobody's safe. I wouldn't trust anybody with this stuff. Well, then don't use it as an excuse that you're not going to do it. There are great uh, counselors, whether it be uh, faith-based or non-faith-based counselors out there that you can find that would begin to walk with you through this process. So, And I, I want to step back to you saying making friends with these things. And listeners, we're not going to rehash this. I don't think it was too long ago that we had uh, one of the best internal family systems uh, conversations I've ever heard with a quick definition. But we as Christians are so 
dead set on figuring out which things are right or wrong that we pass over the stuff we actually have to figure out because we're just categorizing in that way. And I think, Mark, that's what you're talking about when you say make friends with. uh, it, It is what it is, and I need to understand it which part's yeah. protecting me from another part and how is that keeping me <sighs> yep. from the me in christ yeah and i think for me uh i know that my anxiety may never go away the side of heaven but i'm not afraid of it because i know it's one it's there to protect me but it's also there to just go listen like this was your story this is your history and you've healed a lot of your past. You've you've walked through a lot of your trauma. I've done EMDR work. I've done equine therapy. Narrative. I mean, I've done a lot of things in my own life that I use with my patients. Um, but I think it, to me, so here's where I've come to the understanding. My anxiety is a reminder of my reliance on God. That I don't, I can't do it all myself. I can't figure it out all myself. But I've got to be in tune and I've got to be an active participant in that conversation uh, and not real, and realize that I'm not the one that is going to be the end all be all fix all. But when I recognize, oh, my stomach is turning, or I've had a hard time catching my breath today, that's a telltale sign that my anxiety is on the rise. Do I try to fix it, or do I go to my coping skills and just go? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a 15 minute break. I'm going to go. I, we have five acres. I'm going to go walk the property. I'm going to go sit in my chair with the lights off. I'm going to listen to some music. What am I going to do? to just sit with it for a little bit and not try to power through it. And a lot of times it's pulling out my Bible. It's pulling out, it's just spending time talking to God. It's, you know, or whatever it is. Um, and then, you know, in 20, 30, 40 minutes, it's gone. It's gone. I'm exhausted, but it's gone. And I'm about my day. All right. Let me ask this to both of you, because this is going to be dangerous based on what you just said. And I want you both to take the brunt of, you know, anyone's <laughs> feelings about this. Uh, what I have seen in Christendom throughout my life is anything hard or, quote, bad, we try to pray it away. It's of the devil. We need to have victory over it. Where Paul tried to pray away the hard in his life multiple times, three times to be exact, to which God's like, oh, no, this is about you and me. Mm -hmm. That's an important part of us. And then I also think about the Tower of Babel And God saying, oh, you know what? I don't want them to complete this. They're going to be self-sufficient if they Mm -hmm. complete this. And my desire is that they are dependent on me because that's best for them. So I feel like a lot of what you are saying right now is that we don't have a very good theology of suffering in Christianity. And without that, we try to avoid the stuff that God is most using to shape us. All right, both of you talk about don't don't ask God to take stuff away he doesn't want to. Well, I think a lot of times we actually think that that God is the one that's orchestrating all these kinds of things, that he's this evil, mean guy up in the clouds that is uh, you know, a- allowing these things to happen. Now, obviously, we look at the story of Job, we look at different places, there's things that he hasn't kept from happening, mm-hmm. but, but, but I... I, I and I'll just I'll just say this: my favorite story of of theology of suffering as an example is the story of Elijah in Second and First Kings nineteen after the you know Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. God shows up in just this great display of of power. I mean, to the point of you know, eviscerating this altar, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, under the water. Yep. And then 
you know, this baddie queen goes after Elijah because she's mad that all our prophets are dead and he freaks out. Mm-hmm. And right, okay, human response. Awesome. Thank you for making me feel better about myself. Um, runs to the desert, the you know, the broom tree, and I love how God responds and cooks him some food. Yeah, here's some food. Take a nap and have a snack. I tell parents all the time, your kid's crabby, give them a nap and a snack, and, you know, a nap and, a snack and, and they'll be okay. And then ask the insightful question, why are you here? Yes. Tell me. Figure it out, boy. What's going on? You're right. But there was no judgment. There was no, sh- there was no shame. There was no tone. There was no nothing. And then, mm-hmm. But then I love this. The angel gives him purpose. Go to Mount Horeb. Okay, well, Mount Horeb has significant in the Jewish culture. That's where Abraham took Isaac, you know, all, I mean, so there's, there's, there's a significance there. He knows that goes to Mount Horeb. And I just love kind of the, the doofusness of Elijah. He's thinking God's going to show up in this big old, you know, uh, earthquake, fire, storm, wind, you know, crack, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I have a friend in uh, Tel Aviv that goes, Hey, let me give you the, the Hebrew like definition of the whisper. He goes, your English definition doesn't do it justice. He goes, Basically, it's saying that God showed up in the stillness of Elijah's stillness. Mm-hmm. And all he did was ask, what's going on? What brought you here? And Elijah just goes on this you know, complaining rant. And yep. again, God had every right to land on position. Dude, have you not been here for this? Have you not seen me do that? Have you not done this? Have you, you know? And again, he just kind of asks the second question. And then what he does, he goes and gives him purpose. Go, Elisha's waiting for you. The, the remnant's waiting for you. And so I think we can see theology of suffering throughout scripture, but it basically it's, it's modeling how God shows up like, okay. So a theology, and I tell churches this all the time, you can't have a theology of care. You can try, but you can't have a theology of care without a theology of suffering. Mm-hmm. So, but then you go into the new Testament, you know, and, and the, I love the disciples. They're walking through the, the pool and Hey, what did this guy do to he's blind or he's, you know, he's lame. And, and I love God's response. Nothing but that my glory may be displayed in him. And that's where I think we don't want to just overlook and overshadow some of these things. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Because we're not going to see the glory of the Lord being acted in our lives if he takes it away. That's where the relationship comes in. That's where the closeness comes in. That's where the intimacy comes in. But I think we're such a quick fix society, and that's just the way it's been yeah. since the beginning of time, that we don't want that to happen. We just want to feel better. Can I add to your Elijah thing? We talked about this two years ago at our annual retreat, and the worst part of that story to me is that when it's all done, and he's still complaining at the end, he's still playing the victim through all of it, and God finally says, go back the way you came. And that's, <laughs> yes. I hate that <laughs> yes. because, it, I mean, it ties into this integration, which is like, no, I'm not giving you another path out. You're going to walk right. the same road out. But this time, you're going to have community. And you'll you're be okay. Going to meet with another man, and everything will be different, even though you're on the same road. So stop trying to walk around it and go back the same way you chose to came. I didn't tell you to come this way. You right. came this way. Yeah. But walk, walk it back, and it will be different this time. And I yeah. love and hate that with all of my heart. Right. I agreed. Yeah. Well, what both of you are suggesting is that Jesus didn't come to fix our lives and make us comfortable. Nope. That he invites us to a journey. In fact, he joins us in the journey, invites us to the journey, both and, but that journey's hard. He says, follow me, take up your cross and follow me. I mean, that's, 
that's not an indication of a comfortable lifestyle. But so much of our reaction now in our culture, in the church culture now, is like like you said, Aaron, it's uh, pray it away, um, cast it out, uh, look for the solution, because Jesus has to have offered us a solution. Didn't he fix everything by his death on the cross? Well, and Tom, here's the cool part about that, right? You take that life is not going to be easy. Take out the cross and follow me and all that, all that, that goes with that. And then the same breath, we see John 10, 10, that he comes to give us life and life to the full. And so I want people to understand that, that a full life is a life with tension and struggle and trial because mm-hmm. it creates a level of intimacy with our father that we wouldn't experience otherwise. And so it's not that life's going to be hard and not full, but th- there's that that promise, I think, is the thread, and that's where the theology of suffering needs to come from. Is that it is hard. Like, I, I, I mean, I, all of us could sit here probably and tell tell our stories about just the difficulties in life, but I wouldn't go back and change a thing because of how God has shown up in the midst of those things. My life has been so full, and I'm so grateful for that. But I think that's where we get. I'm not. I'm just. I might. Stick a, a stick in a hornet's nest here, Aaron. So I apologize, but oh, I think please. this is. Oh, this, I'm excited now. <laughs> but I think this is why we get the deconversion movement. The this is where we get the deconstruction movement. We get all these things because people are just upset with the way their lives have turned out, and they're they're mad at God, and and so therefore there must not be. It's easier to say there must not be a God than to actually turn around and look into and reflect on the journey and the experiences of that journey and, and really maybe wrestle with our theology. And it's okay that we start out with a certain theology and then we end up at a different place because of life, but not to throw everything out. Well, I, the biggest difference between denominations and church that I see are the types of promises they tell me God is making. <laughs> yes. And the yes. biggest disappointment by everyone that has to deconstruct their faith is because they believed the crap that they were told that God promised that he didn't promise at nope. all. And, and so interpretation. Then, yeah, my, my faith must be not enough and I've tried so hard, so screw this, or God doesn't love me because the promises aren't happening or he just doesn't exist. And yeah, that, that theology of suffering and finding out how God is still good and loving and suffering exists. And by the way, we'll be dead soon. This is really not the biggest part of our existence, but it's incredibly important and includes suffering. So tell me what, uh, I mean, what you're saying is that certain listeners right now that feel like their life is just in the pit, they are total failures. What you just said is, oh no, maybe maybe, maybe you're succeeding right now. Maybe we should define those terms. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what does an integrated life look like? A person who has integrated their mind, body, and spirit, what does that look like? Well, it's going to look, I think it may look different for everyone in some ways, and there's going to be some similarities, but I think um, I'll come back to this finding purpose in the midst of things is where, where I think we really need to come back to. Um, and I think a lot of that, and Tom, you've said this a couple of times, which I totally agree with that has to be done within community. We have to be able to pop our head out of our own story and struggle and go, okay, it's not just about me. And maybe we have to shake the selfishness out of us just a little bit and go, it's not about me. My stuff matters. It sucks. 
and it's not the the end of the story or the bigger picture. And so we, but when we're living in an echo chamber and we're living in the the the, the construct of our own thoughts, we're going to stay stuck there. And so sometimes it's taking that risk and and, and stepping out into f- trying to find community is going to be really important. Um, can, can, you def- but, can you define that before you move on? Find define, purpose in anything. Purpose for many Christians just means just glorify God in this. So sure. suck it up and smile, buttercup. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, I think at least my understanding and my definition of purpose is um, it's meaning-making of the experience. So if I can go back and go, okay, uh it, it might be just a nuanced thing, right? So think about, um, I don't know, uh, for me in my story going, okay, something as simple as I can sit and understand what, uh, if I you know, notice a similarity in an emotional response to the cashier at the grocery store and uh, I stop a little longer and just say, hey, how's your day going? And, and I, I can sense that similar emotion in her that I've experienced, I can be more empathic or more engaging in those around me. I think it's something that it's not, it's not like a, a purpose in the sense of a direction or a career. And that might be that, but well, it could be or, something as simple as just being present with somebody that you can recognize and understand what they're experiencing and feeling. Being, being present. That's huge. I'm thinking of how many funerals for children that I had to go to or officiate over the years and almost without fail, the purpose that was given to that is, did somebody accept Jesus at the funeral as if God needed to kill a kid to get right. a new Christian? And yeah. to them, that's what purpose is, where you're talking about, oh, no, there's little purposes happening everywhere in my life. And it's okay if sometimes it's, it's about me, that God is connecting yeah. with me, and I'm not fixing someone else. That is also a worthy purpose. Yep, yep. But I think we have to intentionally step aside and remove the selfishness that so easily entangles us mm-hmm. to recognize some of those those pieces of purpose. Um, now, I'm not going to sit with somebody. So part of my caseload before I left Colorado was working with families that had lost kids to suicide. And I'm not going to say, you know, in that grieving process that there's a there's a bigger purpose that you can connect with somebody else that understand. No, like that, th- there, that feels very purposeless in the moment. Yeah. And so we, sometimes we just sit with the, the confusion and the uncomfortability of that and just allow our emotions to come and let, you know, that's where I pull out the, the discipline of lament. Let's just rage against yeah. God. Let's oh. just, you oh, know, man, Mark, there it is. That is huge. When we start demanding purpose before it's time, we turn it into a very religiously inappropriate and abusive thing. Yes, agreed. Well, that's brilliantly said, Aaron. When we had you, what'd you just say? When we turn to purpose before it's time, mm-hmm. um, and and that's what spiritual bypass. And I've heard you and Nate talk about spiritual bypass, and and yep. and uh, it's such a prevalent uh, um, practice. Um, I was talking to a friend. Uh, about bypass, and he said, "You know, in our house, we were we were highly churched, um, and my parents were good, good, good people. But whenever any of us kids were really down, really struggling with something, or just unhappy, uh, our mother would put up with it for about fifteen to thirty seconds, and then she would just quietly purse her lips and say, now, let's not let the enemy steal our joy.' <laughs> yeah. And it just shut us 
down because we can't, we got to be a yeah. good witness, got to be a good testimony, yeah. can't let the enemy steal our joy. But that robs us of sitting in lament, of sitting in that place of, hey, this world doesn't work right. It's, What's it's the matter? Up. I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and what's behind that sometimes for people is a doubt of God. Yes. And and for a lot of Christians, it's not okay to doubt God. That's yeah. oh no, 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 no. We can't do that. But you never see God afraid of being doubted. I mean, when we're doubting him and lamenting or even hollering, we're taking him seriously. We're not yes. ignoring yes. him. Yes. But there's there's two sides of the coin that I think is why we need community. One is that we don't give emotions or feelings sometimes their proper time to walk through it. But the other side is to, because my feelings have such a wealth of story and trauma data from the past, that I allow it to stay and I forget that everything has a shelf life. Food, mm -hmm. medicine, everything has a shelf life, and then it becomes toxic and starts to kill me. Even healthy things will eventually <laughs> make me sick. Yes. And so I think only friends can help me figure that out because, man, in those moments, I need someone to say, no, stay with this a little longer. Or, hey, consider that it might be time to look at what this is really about and find out what it looks like on the other side. Well, yes. you're right, but that uh, that best happens when it's somebody who's earned the right to say that, and that oh, yeah. what you said, friend. It's got to be somebody who's walked with us long enough that they've earned the right to say, "Hey, Tom, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and we've talked about this." But I, and then they ask a question, then they make an invitation. They mm -hmm. may even be pointed and say, "You know, you really keep coming back around to this. What's got you stuck? Yeah. Uh, what do you think you really? You got some, you got where's some your real heart in this? You got some nice friends, Tom." My friends would be just like, dude, <laughs> seriously? Like, are we doing this again? <laughs> like, oh, it's uh, man. Uh, uh, Tom is my nice friend. He, <laughs> said, he said some pointed things to me that I've spent years unraveling. <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Beautiful Thank asshole, you. though. <laughs> Thank well, you. hey, it, I we are taking your time, but Mark, we want to direct people to your books. Help my teen is self-injuring that uh has a personal place for me the path out of loneliness and your most recent book the path to wholeness managing emotions finding healing becoming our best selves so you are talking about an integrated life throughout those how do people connect with what you're doing get those books because you'll any questions they have today will be mm. answered in those books Oh, I, I, I doubt it, but uh, we can we can start there. No, the first one is just a, if they want this help, my teen is self injuring. Um, you know, Aaron, I can even send it to you. It's just a PDF I did with Focus in the Family many years ago, so it's not for sale. But I can just I give it to anybody that wants it. Uh, the other ones can be found on Amazon. Um, but if they want to stay connected, they can sign up uh, on doc, you know my drmayfield.com um, website uh, and and find out more there. But um, I just, I enjoy having these conversations. So I appreciate y'all. It was great. Thanks for hanging with us today. And, uh, listeners stick with us. We will be right back here on the pirate monk podcast. And welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. 
Hey, Tom, how'd you enjoy that conversation? Oh, I thought that was really a great conversation. I really appreciate Mark, his insights, um, uh, just his, in, his emphasis on, on integration and practical approaches to it. Great stuff. How about you? I, I like it. I've got some stuff I have to think about, um, especially with the separation of mind, body, and spirit. Thought a lot about that throughout my life. Like, what does that mean? Which are the temporary parts of me? Which are the essential parts that'll still exist beyond the grave? And why does that matter? And uh, so, yeah, he, he said some stimulating stuff. I'm going to have to process through. I'm sure you but, have. You're, you're wiser yeah. than I am. No, I'm not wiser than you are, but yeah, that's a sign of a good interview, isn't it? When something hangs with you saying, I've got to think about that some more. I've got to work on that some more. Hmm. That's provocative. And, uh, and he certainly brought that. So. And at such a young age, the 42-year-old Dr. Mark, come on, make it me feel like me, I should have read some more books or something. No, 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 no. Got to look at it positively. It gives me hope for the future. Ah, sweet. I like that. I like that. I'll take it. So what are you going to be chewing on from this as you work with other people and uh, in their various stages of their lives and understanding their stories? Uh, That's a good question. Um, Yeah, I'm going to have to think about that. Probably re-listen to the interview and... uh, see what I pick up and, and, um, but he definitely, now here, here's one of the things he reinforced some of my biases and isn't that always fun to have that happen. So, you know, when you hear somebody say something you agree with, you go, right, 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 right. So I'm on the right track. I think that was a piece of it that was very helpful. I'd like to take a look at his books and uh, I think those could be really great resources. One of the questions I didn't get to was I wondered how much, if, if he's, when he's doing presentations in Christian communities, how much pushback he gets and what kinds of uh, reactions he gets from folks because you know so many of us shy away from the difficult part of growth we really are creatures of comfort and we really look for ways to bypass to get to um, uh, letting my faith resolve my issues and and bypass um, is the thing that that costs us the opportunity for achieving growth but growth usually comes through some form of pain or overcoming a difficulty or working through something that's not pleasant. Okay, but you're talking about something really hard because bypass comes when I inappropriately apply spiritual paradigms to something so I don't live through it. I try not to experience it by pulling out some Bible verses, whatever, platitudes. But in living through it, I am not supposed to abandon those things I believe or my faith. So sometimes when people react, uh, when they learn about spiritual bypass, they're like, okay, I just need to suffer through this more. And they don't know how to integrate their faith to the living through because they're afraid that will be a version of spiritual bypass. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah. No, you do have to integrate them both. Um, But that's where practices not unlike lament or having a good friend with whom you talk about these things and you ask questions, you listen for input, uh, having genuine community. That's, that's where it comes, comes out. Looking at the scriptures, asking hard questions, of the scriptures, and when you don't find the answers, don't make them up, you know, but yeah, don't, you don't abandon spiritual tools. This is where you actually use them and find that they're useful, mm. but they're useful over the long haul. They're useful in the hard things and they're not useful quickly. Not always quickly. Um, 
I yeah. I remember years ago, uh, Science Mike, Mike McCarg, <laughs> one of his times on the show, I had wanted to talk about certainty because Christians tend to feel like if I'm going to go through something, I have to find an answer. I need to be certain, uh, even though Scripture says, I'm pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed, and I'm perplexed but not in despair. That's the one part that was kept out of the worship song. For some reason, it was all the stuff we don't experience, and they left that line out, which I will say as many times in my life I can was so cruel. So there's there's a space for me to be perplexed, i.e. confused, i.e. uncertain. And and Mike brought it to a neurological aspect of life, that certainty was tied to the part of our brain that feels physical pain because throughout thousands of years, we have to make so many calculated guesses. Don't walk over there in the savanna. The grasses are tall. I believe there might be lions there. If I'm wrong with my guesses, it's a life and death wrong. And so God gave us brains that are connected to desiring certainty. And when we believe something, even in a relationship, I trust this woman or man, I marry them, and then my certainty is betrayed, what I experience is the same as physical pain. That's how my brain is wired. So in that conversation, I gave myself and others a lot more grace for that need for certainty. But then, man, I've got to figure out how to walk it out and put that aside and say, right now, being perplexed is an important part of walking through. Not knowing is an acceptable part of walking through. And that's hard. We're working against our brains, not just our religion at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I was looking over my shoulder. There's a book that was written a half a generation ago, The Myth of Certainty. I can't even remember who wrote it right now. It's a great book, um, The Myth of Certainty. But yeah, we do have that longing to be certain about things because then it it reduces fear. It reduces uh, that sense of anxiety. Um, If I can be certain of this, 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 and that, then I don't have to be afraid or I don't have to be anxious. But that's not life. That's not how it really works. There's very few things. I had a friend years ago when I was very, very young. Uh, well, not very, very young, but when I was in seminary, I worked in a in a setting where I had a, um, a my part-time job. I had a boss who had become a believer as an adult and um, great, great, great guy. Went through a personal crisis and uh, kind of went off the rails. I reconnected with him a few years later and I said, how are you doing? And he says, you know what? I am not as certain of uh, as many things in Christianity as I used to be. I used to be just so, oh, it's this, 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 and this. You know, his early stage discipleship, he, he learned it, he memorized it, he believed it, and, uh, and he could be very, very uh, articulate and firm. And while well, it's this, 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 and this, his systematic theology was complete. And then when his life got really shaken hard, uh, some of those beliefs uh, he had to put on the shelf or he had to ask questions, put question marks behind them. And then he says, but of the few things that I, I know to really be true, I am much more certain than I ever was, Tom. They go so much deeper. And I thought, oh, my goodness, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I was I was young at the time, but I was really paying attention to his uh, his life journey. Um, so, so at this point, I'm certain of two things, and I'm curious which things you're certain of. 
in your sagacity. <laughs> sagacity. What what are you what are you sure of at this point in your life? I am sure that there is a God who has set all things in motion and that all things belong to that being. And that that being is an inscrutable mystery uh, that the most hmm, profound uh, expression of that being is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, I'm certain of those things. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say that's, that's something that I'd go to the mat for. My two things are these, that the person and work of Jesus are enough to make me perfectly beloved of my dad. Mm. And two, that when I'm done with this life, whatever answers I get to the stuff that confuse me will satisfy me. Yeah. That, that I, I don't know what the answers are now. Yeah. And if you told me the answers now, I might not be satisfied. But yes. when I'm dead, whatever I understand, I will just take a breath and go, oh, okay, I'm satisfied. Those those are the only two things that I yeah. have have certainty about. Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. rest I like, anyone I like can to, play with. I like to tell some of the young friends that I have the privilege of working with is that God doesn't answer a lot of our questions because the answer is not going to be the point. It's not going to be what we need. It's not going to be what will satisfy us. And well, so, yeah, he'll leave it wide open. Yeah, come on. We got 37 chapters of Job where he asks questions. Then God <laughs> shows up and doesn't answer a single one of them. Not a one. Let, not a one. <laughs> let me and just, yet Job, Job is going, but you showing up apparently will be enough for me. I cover my mouth now. <laughs> well, you know, after a couple chapters, Job said, stop answering me. And God says, I'm not done and gave him another chapter. Uh, but I, I think that is the, okay. Be, be still my soul. Mm -hmm. These will be answered in a time when I can understand. Stop demanding something that a father mm -hmm. would not hand to a five-year-old because he's like, kid, I love you. But trust me, I could answer that, and it would make no sense to your heart. So just and the, trust me. Yeah, And at the same time, he doesn't abandon us. Nope. He really is present. He really is present. He really is present. Yep. And he and he makes that presence felt in so many different ways, and he will surprise us. And like with Job, there were many inappropriate questions and answers during those dozens and dozens of chapters, and that doesn't scare my dad either. He's like, oh, sweet boy, of course you would ask that. That's, that's a fair question. It's the wrong yeah. question, but it's fair. I love you. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, well, we got to get out of here. Listeners, if you want to send your thoughts, your questions, your uh, dad jokes, send them to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. But as of now, we've reached the end of our time. I am Aaron. And I'm Tom. And we are your pals here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Give us an arg, Tom. Arg! The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.